This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This Slate podcast is brought to you by Bing.com, the search engine that helps you make everyday decisions with the help of your friends. Now, what your friends like on Facebook is in your search results on Bing. Hello and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for Monday, August 29th. I'm Emily Bazelon. I am in our D.C. studio. Joining me in New York, I am very pleased to say, are Slate's Julia Turner and Michael Agar. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Hello, hello. And we are going to talk today about Jennifer Egan's novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which is just festooned in prizes. It won both the Pulitzer and the National Book Critics Circle Award. I decided that we are not going to try and summarize the plot of this novel because it is several interlocking chapters that all connect to each other eventually, but it's not really clear as they go. And the characters, some of them reappear, some of them appear once. The chapters, at least in my mind, both work as set pieces on their own and then kind of add up to something more when you move them all together. Egan has said that she was inspired both by The Sopranos and by Marcel Proust's novel In Search of Lost Time when she wrote this book. And critics have talked about it also in terms of the movie Crash, which also had these different interlocking stories in it. Those are three very disparate influences, by the way. <laughs> right, I know. Well, it's like the structural and the thematic influences. I kind of mixed it all together. So what I was wondering, just to kick things off, Julia, you said that you felt like you could kind of conceptually summarize the book. So I thought perhaps we would start there. And I'm also wondering whether you feel like the structure is burdensome to the reader in a good way or whether it's just sort of too much to keep track of. So A Visit from the Goon Squad the goon is time. Uh, in one of the chapters, she notes, the goon is time. Time comes to get you. Time ends all your plans. Time will kill you eventually. So all of the characters in the book are in some way facing their mortality, and we visit them at various points in their life, and their lives intersect in many, perhaps too many, interlocking ways, I think. And we sort of see them grow and change and become different people and reach various states of happiness with their existence or not reach those states, as the case may be, depending on character. Uh, And it also stretches from the mid-70s a bit into the future. And so it does a bit, I think, of social commentary of trying to explain how, uh, you know, this modern world and whatever it's going to amount to changes human interaction and changes the way we relate to each other. So that's my conceptual summary of the book. In terms of how well it worked, I tend to hate books of short stories and prefer novels that have a nice focus. I feel like life is fragmented and distracted enough, and I like to sink deep into one straight experience in a book. Mm-hmm. That said, and, and I think actually the last time I was on the audiobook club, I was discussing Tom Rockman's The Imperfectionist, which was a similar <laughs> right. interlinked set of short we stories. We only but... <laughs> make you talk about book structure in a way that Yeah, you... it's like I'm only get to go on the audiobook club to talk about the exact structure of book that is my least favorite structure of book. <laughs> However, I do think this one is as successful as I've ever seen. I, I think it does amount to something larger than 
its individual parts and I like the parts themselves very much. So I found the structure sort of pleasant. Hey, I have to add in one more thing about the structure. I was reading something on NPR this morning in which one of the critics said that it, the book is structured like a Facebook page. Michael, that's like the perfect throw to you, <laughs> whether you know it or not. Maybe, you know, like all the people from high school kind of showing up and, and writing <laughs> yeah, things. Yeah, like but, the people you forgot along the way, then they crop and you but can't But you never get that remember. flash forward like, like 20 years into the future where... You know, they're old and obese and still on your Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I agree with Julia. I, I like the structure a lot. Egan herself said that, that part of the inspiration for this, this book was, you know, that experience when you're riding on the subway or you're on the bus or an airplane and, you know, someone kind of catches your eye. That you're just cu sort of curious about them and, and you want to follow them home and, and see what their lives are like. And, and, I, and I think the way when you kind of interlink characters in this style, it's you know, it's kind of like like that movie Shortcuts, Robert Altman or Magnolia, or I just felt like, you know, these were certainly written as as set pieces. It was pretty ingenious the way Egan Egan wove them together. Right. I mean, don't you also feel like it makes the book structure into a mystery to some degree that you're trying to remember and connect? I mean, this is both what I really loved about the book and what I found difficult about it. The first time I read it last year, I didn't have time to read it quickly. And so I felt like I kept having to kind of start over and work really hard to remind myself, you know, who is Sasha? Oh, yeah, she opened the book, but then she disappears for several chapters and she comes back at a completely different age. When I reread it, I loved it because I remembered enough that I picked up all the clues along the way and I kept patting myself on the shoulder for how well I was paying attention. I kind of had the opposite reading experience, which is I read this on vacation in a straight day in a hammock you know, with rain going outside and just devoured it. And it was like one of those vacations where you hadn't spent consecutive hours reading anything in like months or years. And it felt so good to just devour a book, but it disappeared from my head almost completely. I mean, it was like, you know, parfait or something. It just evaporated <laughs> on the tongue. And I haven't thought about it since apart from the fact that it was satisfying to read such a funny, pleasant, smart book. Uh, and I revisited it in preparation for this podcast and was sort of trying to think a little bit more critically about how the different parts fit together and what it adds up to and whether it adds up to anything interesting or Pulitzer worthy or National Book Critics Circle Award winner worthy or, oh my goodness, I'm opening the galley copy here, Los Angeles Times Book Prize winner. I mean, it's interesting that it sort of goes down like a trifle and yet it's gotten so much love so that's the thing i've been trying to puzzle through this yeah, week that's funny you know i had the exact same experience i read it in like a white hot heat in like a day uh -huh. the first time around and then it just yeah it was like a pop song or it, it just vanished from my mind that's actually like a line in the book she talks about you know songs that you can't remember only the mood remains and there's nothing that is going to make you able to find it again <laughs> <laughs> right. That's so interesting. So maybe maybe that's all art. Maybe that was all on purpose. And that's why I won the post. No, I don't think so. But I totally disagree with both of you on this. For me, this book, I read it um, around when or right before I read Freedom by Jonathan Franzen. And at that moment, a year ago or so, it was the Franzen book that was getting all the accolades and the attention and had been anointed as, you know, the second coming of the next great American novel or whatever my mixed metaphors have yielded there. And I felt like this book had more lasting things to say in it and was more artful and elegant in its prose. But I've actually thought a lot about some of the different constructs in the year since in that way that when a book 
you know, becomes like a social map for you. You sort of mm-hmm. come back to it. So I'm interested that you guys didn't have that experience. Wait, which parts did you linger on? Particularly what, what? the last chapter, which I don't think we should start off by talking about, but the kind of futuristic vision. I feel like several authors in the last year or two have tried to write about, you know, how we use um, – she calls them handsets or, you know, Gary Steinger calls them apparats, like, or however you say that word. Whatever our devices have turned into, our iPhones, our all-powerful personal computers that we're carrying around. I thought about that a lot. Maybe we should wait to talk about that chapter. But to me, the comparison to Gary Steingart's super sad true love story mm-hmm. was very present in that final chapter. Totally. Me too. Yes. All right. Well, we'll get to that. I wanted to start off by asking you each to pick an individual chapter to talk about your favorite one or one that you're eager to sink deeper into. I'm going to come out in favor of the oh-so-controversial PowerPoint chapter. This is chapter 12 in the book. You know, reportedly, like, this actually wasn't in the book when Egan turned it in, and then she sort of decided that she needed it. It takes up a fairly healthy chunk of the, you know, the last section. It's uh, 75 pages. Yeah, but it goes super fast. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah you can fly through it thanks to the, uh, you know, the slides. So the, the person who presents the, uh, the presentation is Sasha's. Sasha's kind of the main, you know, one of the main characters in the book. And, um, you know, she goes through a lot. But anyway, at, at this stage in her life, she, she's living in uh, New Mexico, I believe. She's reconnected with her college boyfriend and she has a a teenage daughter, Allison, and a um, an autistic son named Lincoln. Anyway, the PowerPoint's definitely maybe perhaps too precocious for a, a 12-year-old girl, but um, I just liked how, you know, the boy Lincoln is sort of obsessed with the pauses in, in rock and roll songs, and then the way Egan uses PowerPoint is also, you know, just lots of pauses and page turning for dramatic effect. But also, in particular, I liked how she uses the kind of built-in flowchart function of it all, one page which was particularly successful was um, was page 191, and it's, um, the headline is Lincoln wants to say slash ends up saying. It's Egan describing Lincoln trying to talk to his dad. And talking instead about the pause in the song Fly Like an Eagle, right? Yeah, well, do you mind if I just read it really fast? No, please. So Lincoln wants to say, you know, quote, I love you, dad. And then we get to follow the kind of chain of his, his thoughts, his sort of autistic thinking. Dad is from Wisconsin. I love music. Dad loves me. Steve Miller is from Wisconsin. The Steve Miller band was popular 50-something years ago. One of their biggest hits was Fly Like an Eagle. Hey, Dad, there's a partial silence at the end of Fly Like an Eagle, with a sort of rushing sound in the background that I think is supposed to be the wind, or maybe time rushing past. And so, you know, so often when you play with form, it seems like they're just playing around, but I feel like this was able to kind of, you know, deepen the characterization, so... Now, did you partly choose this page because this whole theme of time rushing past is so key to the book? Or was that almost like ancillary to the observation that she's making about how this boy thinks about his father? Well, yeah, no, that was a lucky coincidence, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is the, obviously one of the central themes. And, you know, the way music itself can kind of encapsulate these moments, you know, listening to a, a pop song, you know, can be a little bit a time capsule. You know, that's certainly addressed in this chapter as well. But how about you, Julia? What was your uh, what was your top chapter? Well, actually, I want to talk a little bit more about the PowerPoint chapter. And maybe it's time to start talking about that final chapter, actually, a little bit. I mean, just as a little background for our listeners. So the Gary Steingart book takes place only in the near future. It's a very dystopic vision of a world with a weak America and a rising China and a bunch of super shallow people who are hooked into 
iPhone-like devices that constantly assess everyone around them for social status, um, you know, for what is it? Personality and fuckability. Yeah, sacking um, where you go around in a bar and you look and see around you how people are rating you. Right. So that basically the idea is that technology reduces us to a sort of very shallow inability to connect with one another. It severs our ties to each other and uh, puts us in a, a strange digital universe. The thing I really liked about this book and the thing that that I thought made it more interesting and more thoughtful and more successful than Super Sad True Love Story, which I thought was funny but got a little thin toward the end, is that it sort of tries to show how we get from here to there and sort mm-hmm. of how the world as we know it and as we have known it will become something slightly different in the future. And I like that she's not just completely satirically apocalyptic about it. I mean, there's a moment in this PowerPoint chapter where it becomes clear that school has become about how to learn to do good PowerPoints. And there's a great line where Sasha as the mother is saying, why can't you actually write something? And her daughter, Allie, is saying, like, why would I need to do that? Why would I use paper? And on on page 254 in my copy, you know, it's clear that she's been getting lessons in how to do slides at school. And the slide is called slide slogans from school that I fire at mom (laughs) just to annoy her. And the slogans are give us the issues, not the tissues. Add a graphic and increase your traffic. Chart should illuminate, not complicate. A word wall is a long haul. You know, so it's a similar idea, right, that this modern contraption of Microsoft PowerPoint is reducing us all to idiots who are unable to grapple with, you know, mortality and through deep passages of text. Meanwhile, it's embedded in a chapter that's using this exact form to do something really artful and beautiful uh, while pointing out that pop songs is similarly derided abomination also give us a way to kind of think about no, that, yeah what that's a good like. point it's like something that a powerpoint which is you know supposedly drains ideas of nuance and complexity and here you know you can use it to you know the opposite to kind of deepen the characters you know right and yeah. sort of show how they can still connect to each other it's just in a new way and in a different way i also thought it allowed her to have the voice of a young teenage girl in a way that could be very astute and yet somehow felt believable. Yeah. Right? Because it's in these short bursts. And then the other thing I liked about it is that in this last chapter, which we really should just talk about since it keeps coming up, there's this very alarming vision of the future in this young girl named Lulu who has been introduced earlier in the book in another chapter as the, like, seven-year-old mean girl who is the, you know, core of her group of friends and who has this stranglehold over her mother and is this kind of vision of pre-adolescent power. And she comes back at the end also as kind of this terrorizingly powerful force and her use of the futuristic technology that is like the most Stengardian if that's a word moment in the book it just seems like oh my god these you know young people are gonna mow us down I have to say the last chapter just totally annoyed me like I could I would lop it from the book I think um a very small point you know but so the characters use all this text speak that's misspelled yes right and that seems very like wrong right because like now like you know that it's all corrected for you automatically by your phone no but teenagers do wait wait let's let's before we dial into the details (laughs) let's let's just set the stage on the final chapter and actually talk about it because i think it's one of the most interesting ones to grapple with so the final chapter takes place a bit into the future where Benny, who's another of the main characters, who's sort of an all-powerful music producer whose career has uh, risen and then fallen and is on the rise again, is trying to launch the music career of his old, old high school pal of 
former crazy guy slash still crazy guy, but excellent guitarist. And he's doing that by buying the services of parrots, what are called parrots. Although I love, there's a line where it's like, we're not supposed to call them parrots anymore ever since the Blaga scandals, which somehow combines <laughs> like, it sounds like something out of the Reformation, but also uh, with such a modern word, it was an amusing line. You know, so basically the idea is that you can't trust human interaction in the near future because your friends and their opinions are bought and paid for by corporations and sinister music producers. But then after this character cajoles his various friends and gets other friends to cajole their friends to come to this concert, the concert is transcendently beautiful and the the music is amazing and everyone has this kind of insanely focused, glorious, transcendent experience. Or everyone just wants the music to be amazing. It's a little hard to tell, right? Right. <laughs> That's true too. Maybe they've been hyped. Maybe they've been hyped and primed to find it amazing. And then the book essentially ends there. So within that world, you're right, Agar, if you could extrapolate what texting would be like in the future from 2002, this is what you would extrapolate. Right. But from 2011, that's not what you would expect. I would just like to say that the teenagers I am writing about right now spell nothing correctly. And it's hard to understand what they're saying. It's all abbreviations, though. It's not like they are perfectly using the letter for and, you know, a capital E is the sound E. Right. There's not like internal phonetic consistency right. or something. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so in that sense, you're totally right. But I think the act of translation is still a relevant idea. Just getting the larger theme of this chapter, like this this notion that like, you know, oh, you're selling out or like your friends are viral marketers. I mean, that just, I don't know, just that just felt so sort of dated. I didn't. I just was like, why is this a concern? You know, this it just seems such a narrow music concern, I guess. Like this this notion that you're not supposed to sell out, that that's the kind of authentic band experience. And, and Yeah, and it seemed like a weird place for the book to land because it felt like the book was grappling with things that were so much bigger. I mean, I was sort of wanting to like the final chapter because I liked the vision of humanity in the book much better than I liked the one in the Steingart book. And I wanted to think hey, all right, this is the book that's going to show us how we get to the future and maybe mm -hmm. is a little bit more ambivalent about whether the future is dystopic or not, uh, which I think is a more complicated and interesting position to take. And instead, yeah, the critique of the future, the, of the hypothetical future, did feel a little bit simple and shallow. The part that I liked more, the funnier vision of the future world, is the idea that babies are pointers and that you can figure out whether a song is going to be a hit by clocking a baby response to it. And they're the, the tastemakers. That they point to what people are going to like because they're responding to the beats in some primal yeah, kid I way. Yeah, I admit that the pointer was genius. Yeah, that was genius, funny. Yes, yeah. And the idea that we'll all be, you know, led by babes. I want to ask your, both of your, your opinion of what I, on my reread, I thought was sort of one of the most interesting, but also, I don't know, perhaps bothersome aspects of the book, which is the flash forward. Often throughout the book, we're kind of following a character along, and then you know, some sort of climatic event happens. And then um, Egan does this thing where um, she just kind of sends us way into the forward life of the character. So I was just thinking, you know, if, when you see like a flash forward in a movie or like a, a TV show, I mean, you just think it's feel like our default reaction is, oh, that's so cheesy or such a cheap response. But here, I, I feel like it works. You know, I, it just, it's like they it can be really moving. But do you share this with me or not? I had a similar, similarly conflicted response. I do think the book works. I did sort of like the sense that you're cosmically dipping in on people's lives and you omnisciently understand the whole scope of their existence. And then you get through uh, Egan's prose, which is really vivid and sharp, 
the sense of what it felt like to be them at a given moment, but you also have the larger context that what you don't always have when you're experiencing a given moment, that the moment is only one of many, many moments and many ways of being and many, many different people and people you will be and feelings you will have over the course of your lifetime. In a way, she does that and it kind of makes you the god of the book and it makes you feel like you understand the whole scope of human experience because you understand the scope of these people's lives and what it felt like at various points. So that it all amounts to something that works, I think. The one thing that that I felt more conflicted about was quite how interconnected all these lives were. Like it's one thing that they occasionally crop up in each other's stories, but really like everybody circles back around. It's, you know, it's not like just a plate of spaghetti that tangles up here and there. It's sort of, it's almost like it's been woven together in this very tidy interlocking way. So there's another moment in that chapter where I forget if it's Albert or, or one of the other African guys it's it's a young african dancer who's like a native african not a right wait i think i have the he becomes lulu's boy uh, lulu's daughter's boyfriend right and he ends (laughs) up getting a phd in robotics and hanging his grandfather's tribal knife oh yeah on the the wall right here i I have it i have it here (laughs) it's basically just a warrior who's dancing in front of them at the safari 35 years from now, in 2008, this warrior will be caught in the tribal violence between the Kikuyu and the Luo and will die in a fire. He'll have had four wives and 63 grandchildren by then, one of whom, a boy named Joe, will inherit his lalema, the iron hunting dagger in a leather scabbard, now hanging at his side. Joe will go to college at Columbia and study engineering, becoming an expert in visual robotic technology that detects the slightest hint of irregular movement, the legacy of a childhood spent scanning the grass for lions. He'll marry an American named Lulu and remain in New York. And on they go, and the and the daggers in their living room in New York, and that just all—it's like every single little flicker of a character gets looped in, which in some ways is what modern life feels like, right? But there's a sort of tidiness, everything just so-ness to it that sometimes felt like a little bit too much to me. So you know, she doesn't do the connections this explicitly throughout the whole book. I think it would start to feel immensely irritating if she did. This is a particular chapter. One thing I think about this is it allows you to see again this whole scope of time. I was struck by this quote from Pankaj Mishra, who was writing about this book, and he said that it's about that Egan's able to show how ourselves, deprived of their old cohesiveness, are able to cope. And I do think there's this way in which she strips away all the customary protections of a narrative where you only have to deal with the particular moment you're in and what's come before, and it makes the character seem incredibly vulnerable at some moments. All right. Before we move on, the audiobook club today is sponsored by Bing.com, the search engine that helps you decide. And even though this is an audiobook club, I was looking around today on Bing at the movie search page and just enjoying how it automatically figures out your location and displays showtimes near you for whatever movie you're searching for. Someday, I'm sure they will have a similar feature for book. Well, what would it be? Actually, there are no more bookstores. No, scratch that. You would never need such a future for um, a feature (laughs) for books in their, you know, less location-dependent state. But in any case, with Bing's social search feature, you can also find out what movies your friends like, what music they're listening to. It's all right there on the search pages. So please go give it a try at bing.com. All right, Michael, your Jennifer Egan question, please shoot. Okay, well, it starts with a Kind of a confession, but partly a chick, which is that, you know, as a reader of fiction, I almost uniformly tend to pick up men. You know, I just, I read guys. Oh my huh. God, you're going to get in so much trouble for that confession. I can't believe you admitted to uh, no, that. No, it's not. I'm not proud of it, I, but it just, it just happens. I don't know. 
Anyway, so I recently confessed this to a friend of mine, and then her recommendation was, well, you should read Jennifer Egan. And I think it's a great book. I enjoyed reading it twice now. I want to go on and read her other stuff to keep and, and likewise. But my question is, what is it about Egan? I, and I've heard this from other guys, too. It's like, what makes her appealing to men? Why is she... I was wondering if you had any theories about this. Well, this is totally not chick lit, right? And she's not even, you know, simply having mostly female protagonists, which I think a lot of women writers do. I mean, I'm thinking of Amy Bloom, who I think also has very expansive canvas, and you should go read her too now that you're on a, you know, women writer kick. But there's something about Egan that I'm not sure if you didn't know this book was by a woman that you would guess that. What do you think, Julia? You know, it's set in the music industry. That's sort of a male world. It's got some sex in it from the perspective of men and women, maybe. I don't I know. I mean, how many women writers make fun of an attempted rape, which is what she is able to pull off in this really pretty hilarious chapter that's like a parody of bad magazine profiling by a guy yeah, named I've Jules. seen that chapter referred to as a parody of David Foster Wallace in a bunch of reviews of the book. And I didn't even grok it as that when I was reading it. I mean, obviously it has footnotes, but to me, I thought it was a parody of bad magazine writers who think they're David Foster Wallace. Yeah. Well, also Jenny Egan writes some nonfiction for the New York Times Magazine. So there's a good way, I think, in which she's also spoofing her own genre. It's a very funny, canny spoof of the self-conscious celebrity profile. It's really amusing. Yeah, that's it. It's like you're so desperate not to just turn in another generic celebrity profile that you try to come up with a gimmick and... In this case, it's it's subpar. And well, you, know, you lose your shit Foster in Wallace the middle of the notes. reporting, and you like. You know, okay, I mean... <laughs> it's funny we keep landing on the chapters I had trouble with. Now this one, you know, spoiler alert, you know, you know, an attempted rape of the starlet by the magazine writer, and that just felt like one of these like fiction bolts from the blue. As a close reader of magazine journalism, I was amused by it, but I thought it was one of the weakest in terms of. To larger themes of the book. I didn't think it contributed that much. It's funny, and it gives us a character who comes back to us later in the chapter about the PR woman and the dictator, which we should also probably talk about. Yeah, but I think the character of Jules, who's Benny's first wife's brother, I'm sure that's a clarifying uh, Oh, yes, that will clear it up for everyone. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about now. But anyway, this character of Jules, the celebrity profiler, I thought was one of the least fully realized and least interesting in the book. Here's my defense of Jules as a narrator. Maybe it's not this particular one, but one of the things I like about the way this book is put together is it allows Egan to have these very damaged people tell a chapter. Scotty, the guitar player on whom the book ends, has a chapter in the middle that's just devastating. He's like a complete wreck of a human being. And there's another character earlier on who was essentially, you know, sexually abused, I guess, or at least totally taken advantage of by Lou, the evil, sleazy music producer dude. And I don't think you'd want to spend an entire book in the company of any of these people. And yet having one chapter, which is interwoven with other chapters in which you have much stronger or fiercer narrators, I was totally willing to go for that. I think she does sort of get at the damagedness of people in a way that's very empathetic and makes you feel like you're in the shoes of a shoplifting former prostitute or a totally insane guy or a tortured closeted Midwestern gay guy or whatever else. Yeah, to hit on a good point there, Egan paces the downers very well, and then you're happy to kind of you know, sip that bitter drink for a little bit. That was a much more succinct way of putting my point, Michael. Thank you. I have a question, though, just thinking about that chapter where Ladal, the 
all-powerful PR executive who we see in her prime and then we see after um, she's thrown a party gone horribly awry. Kind of an awesome detail, yeah. So funny. She tries to throw like a huge black and white ball style gala for all of her clients and all of her power players and she's at the top of her game. She's sort of described as having like an Anna Wintour style patina of hard gloss and accidentally she creates an installation in the room that drips hot oil over all of her guests and scalds them completely so she becomes persona non grata. Except then everyone like makes up fake burns so they can pretend to say they, they were, were at, at the her party. party. Yeah. Then we meet her again at the bottom of her ebb and her only client is this horrible genocidal African dictator and she comes up with strategies to rejuvenate his image in the Western world, first by making him wear a cute fluffy hat and then second by setting him up on a date with Kitty, the actress who was nearly raped by Jules in the Celebrity Profile chapter episode, I wanted to call it, which is maybe telling. Actually, HBO is making a TV series out of this book. Which, oh, really? Yeah, which oh, makes sense because so it wouldn't work as a movie, right? Anyway, No, but it would be a really good miniseries. Yeah. That's a really good point. But thinking that all through made me realize, so the possible thematic argument for including the Celebrity Profile chapter right is that this is a book in some ways about hype. You know, Michael and I were both sort of dissatisfied with the idea that the end sum of this book and the final chapter is that the dystopic future is a future where our friends try to hype us and that that feels sort of like off and weird and not that interesting a problem. But if you think about it, right, she's got the celebrity profile, which is an exercise in hype gone self-reflexively critical to the point of insanity. And then we've got this uh, Ladal chapter where we've got the hypester using the mechanisms of hype to hype someone who's committed genocide, right? So she seems more interested in hype than I am personally. But what is she doing with those things? Do you guys have an answer? Like, why does she think the hype of the world is the most important thing to engage with here? In her 2001 book, which is called Look at Me and came out right around 9-11, is also, you know, about like image and celebrity. So I think she is more interested in these themes and the effect they have on people, perhaps. Well, but I don't, I mean, I was going to say than you are, but I mean, I think she does larger things with these points, right? It doesn't feel as if we're living in this rarefied world that only celebrities and only people in the New York, you know, A-list social scene could possibly relate to because she's also using this theme to talk about like the mini betrayals that take place all the time and the way in which people compromise about their principles. Yes, both of those things are in the book. But I guess that the thing I had trouble piecing together was how does this idea about hype and about selling something to other people circle back to the more quiet personal narratives, which for me are the stronger ones in the book, like the relationship between Benny and his son, Benny and his wife whom he betrays. Sasha and Benny, Sasha and her college boyfriend. Those Mm -hmm. were the most powerful chapters for me. And then Sasha and her eventual family. What about the idea that the spine of the book even perhaps is the idea that some characters are lost and some get found, right? I mean, this idea of being lost comes up repeatedly with different people. And it has to do with time being a goon squad, but that's only part of it. It's really just the notion that you have something happen to you that creates this tear in your life and you can never stitch yourself back together. And some of the characters really are lost and gone and others of them actually turn out to be survivors in the end, right? And even unexpectedly, I mean, both Scotty, the, you know, completely 
ripped apart guitar player actually has this moment of triumph at the end of the book. It's also true of the other musician we actually meet, this guy Bosco, who pitches that he's going to go on a suicide tour where he's like such a drug-addled, obese mess that he's literally going to drop dead on the stage. And instead we find out later in the book in an aside that he's become a dairy farmer and you know <laughs> has moved out of the city. And yet there are other characters who truly remain lost. And is there some way, Julia, where perhaps this idea of selling out and of hype kind of weaves itself into that larger theme, which touches both the quiet and the more garish chapters. In a way, the idea that all the hype and fame in the world can't protect you from life's real ups and downs and life's real highs and lows. To me, that's the part that seems... A little pat. Well, that's one conclusion you can draw from it, but that's just not a very interesting conclusion, <laughs> right? Like that's sort of obvious. I, I don't, I think you have to be pretty Right. We don't in want the book of... to boil down to that and win the Pulitzer right. Prize, like that's right? The part, <laughs> I, and maybe that's the part that made me feel like it melted on my tongue too fast or something that, yeah. that it's such a beautiful and evocative portrait of that exact thing about how in your life you can be sort of high and, and feel all powerful and glorious and joyful in one moment and be sort of crawling in a curled up apostrophe on the lawn because you found out that your husband who you thought would never cheat on you again has in fact cheated on you again with your tennis partner. (laughs) Uh, The next moment that the real lived experience of the world just hinges on things that are totally divorced from the hype machine. Maybe what you're getting at, I, I might be extrapolating too much, but it's like, you know, no one in the book really like solves time. You know, there's no, there's no, you know what I mean? There's, like there's no one who kind of like makes a piece with um, maybe Lou at the very end. I think Sasha does. Really? I think Sasha does. How? Here's the chapter I like the best in the book. It's called Goodbye, My Love. I think it's chapter 11. Yes. And it's about a modern reinvention, I think, of the book The Ambassadors by Henry James, where you have someone who is lost in Europe and an older relative who's kind of bumbling has to go and find that person. And so Sasha is the girl who's lost. This is, I think, after in her teen prostitute years. Yes, this is her teen prostitute years that proceed when she ends up at NYU. And we already talked a little bit about that. That's another chapter I really liked. But in any case, she's a mess. Her uncle Ted, who is an art historian, shows up. He becomes completely transfixed by an art rendition of Orpheus and Eurydice. So there's that this idea of, you know, this pursuit through Hades trying to save people. And he is also trying to save Sasha, only he's really not interested in doing that at all. He's kind of put off by her. He doesn't know what to do with her. He's making peace in some ways with the fact that he seems to have also wrecked his own marriage. And this idea of, you know, Susan, his wife, ends up as one of the characters who's kind of gone and he's blaming himself for that and for having kind of scorned her love for him. And then at the end, there's this image, this end of this chapter, which I loved, in which Sasha has this room at the top of a garret in a old, old building in Naples. And you feel like she's so sad and pathetic, but she has taken a hanger and bent it in such a way and hung it in the window that when the sun is setting, it drops right into that wire. And she talks about this as it's basically the idea that she says at the end of the chapter of the sun, it's mine. And I felt like that idea of owning time and really finding some way to harness it to your own purposes was one of the things that made her totally stand out for me as a character. Yeah, I loved that chapter. I mean, Sasha throughout, I think, is really the main character of the book. She's the one I think we encounter the most times. And she does make peace with the goon squad, I think, because she starts out in that troubled place and she finds different ways to connect with the existence. She's the sticky-fingered thief that the book opens with. She's just stolen someone's wallet. And then she's the mom figure in the PowerPoint chapter. And it just feels like 
she's at peace. I mean, just from Allie's PowerPoint portrayal of her, it feels (laughs) like she's a good mom and she's at peace. And then we hear about her again in the final chapter. And Benny says, she's dropped out. I don't know where she is. I wouldn't know where to find her. I mean, in a way, it ends up amounting to the idea that to beat the goon squad, you have to drop out of the hype game, which again, is like a less interesting point than I want this book to be making. All right. I'll agree with you that Sasha, she's the one who's sort of most grounded in the end. But but then, uh, you know, the image that Egan chooses to end the book on, you know, like another young woman arriving in the city, you know, unlocking her it was a little apartment door, city, you know, huh? so it's like there's just this obsession with like becoming and like that that moment before, you know, things are settled and, you know, you're still young and full of possibility. And and yet that last chapter is also about nostalgia, right? Because Benny and Alex, they're not interested in the new girl who's coming to the apartment. They want the old girl who they've half forgotten, but who is mesmerizing for them because they used to know her. I liked that ending because it, to me, it was sort of a reminder of that beautiful voyeurism of the book of mm-hmm. like, oh, if only the book kept going, we might know what happened to the new girl too. And we might track her 70 years into the future. Right. You know, that's the sequel. The Goon Squad continues. <laughs> the Goon Squad is back. <laughs> Don't you get tired of your 20-year-old self after a while? I mean, come on. You know, it's just like, But ah. the narrator of that last chapter, Alex, <laughs> is trying to reconnect with his 20-year-old self. And it seems pathetic, right? I mean, he's not the moral core or the soul of this book. But Sasha has moved on from her 20-year-old self. And that's why I think Julia and I are so taken with her. I've just loved the book at its most quotidian. I think those sort of personal chapters where she's really just describing human relationships in a simple and declarative way, as opposed to some kind of elaborate theoretical treatise on famous people and their weird mores, I loved. And I think that chapter, the NYU chapter, where we meet Sasha in her post-Naples prostitute days, but pre-music industry apparatchik days, and where we learn about the death of her friend Rob, who was this touchstone friend, is another really beautifully rendered one. So would you guys recommend this book? Totally. Despite all my reservations about what it amounts to, it's such a pleasurable book going down that I can't really stake any claim against it. Michael, would you um, recommend it in particular to men you know who don't read books by women? It's true that there's lots of good sex in it. And, <laughs> um, my take with this book, it all, it all depends. I think how much you like it, unfortunately, is you know a lot how you feel about your own past. You See, know, but it I can't be a little overwhelming. <laughs> but, uh, I don't think yeah. the book is nostalgic, though. Like I think the book has the wisdom of years gone by, and I think the book kind of looks benevolently on youthful glory days and argues that there's a wiser, better place to get to. I, I didn't find the book nostalgic. I thought it was a book about transcending that. I clearly need the sequel. (laughs) (laughs) On that forward-looking note, what I wonder about this book is whether it's going to be one of the books from this moment that lasts. There are a number of contenders. We've talked about some of them. They're trying to imagine both the present and in a kind of anxious way, think about the near future. And I just, I'm really curious to see if in 20 or 25 years, this feels like a relevant vision that people are still interested in being part of. I think I will think about it more now that we've talked about it a bit more. I'll quiz you. Okay. (laughs) Meet you here same time next year. All right. Excellent. Thank you guys so much for joining me. It was totally a pleasure to talk about this with you. Thank you. Likewise, Emily, yeah, this was thanks, fun. Emily. Good. We'll be back with you next month, and our book for September will be The Submission, a new novel by Amy Waldman that has a strong 9-11 theme, and so we are timing it around the 10th anniversary, um, as is the book in its publication. So go check Michael that out. better read it. You better you better get your lady roster go. Exactly. Going. We're going to add to your I'll lady roster. I'll be reading roster. Jane Austen after this. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I also want to thank our engineer, Abdullah Rufus, and our producer, Andy Bowers. And thanks, everyone, for listening.